Loving Lord, we thank you for life and we thank you for the knowledge of the truth that gives us purpose and that we have the privilege of sharing life through your word. Be with us as we once again direct our attention to your holy book and be with me as I share and pray that the things that we learn will help us be better witnesses. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It kind of feels cool having my voice being so low. I really, I don't want to teach right now, I want to sing. <laughs> but that would, bring the, that would bring the class to a quick end. Um, the presentation I want to do with you right now, I, it can be found in a book that I think they've got over at the ABC. I'm just telling you that because I can't do it all in one program. It's called Caveman Theology. It is, it's called Caveman Theology. It's actually, uh, I take the conversion experience of Isaiah that you find in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at that real quick. And I make the, the point that that reviews the steps of salvation. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go there and read it quickly. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm not, I, we're reading through 1 through 9a. I'm not even going to read all the way through verse 9. 1 through 9, halfway through verse 9. And bear with me as I read. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, and he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So first he describes what he saw, and then what he said. Verse 5, I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people. Here you've got the steps of conversion. Now if I was to ask you, what's the first thing a person needs to do to be saved? I often get answers like, repent, believe, but I would suggest to you that the first thing in the steps of salvation is to see. Even in the book Steps to Christ, you'll find that she says, first a person must see the love of God. The Bible says it is the goodness of God that leads us to the next step, which is repentance. And look at all the examples in the Bible you'll see of people who are converted, and it begins with seeing something. The Bible tells us that Paul is on the road to Damascus and he sees the Lord. That brings about his conversion. Uh, the thief on the cross, he sees Jesus lifted up and he goes through the steps of he publicly confesses and he repents and he receives. You have the example of Zacchaeus who goes through a conversion experience. What did Zacchaeus want? He says he wanted to see the Lord and so he climbed a tree to see the Lord. And uh, there's countless other examples in the Bible. 
Um, and when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we start to sink. Remember Peter walking on the water. What was the key to his doing the impossible? For you to live the Christian life is impossible unless you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Paul said, since we are then surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us cast aside the sin and the weight that does so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus. And you know, you've heard that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Uh, we are transformed by what we behold. That's, of course, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And Christ, when he talked to Nicodemus about the steps of salvation, uh, he said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men. Why did he say that? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent. You remember the story? People were complaining about their food. They didn't like the manna God gave. And then the serpents came in. And that's, that's a very important point. If we're not satisfied with God's bread, the serpents will come in. And they were all bit by these deadly serpents, and they were dying from the venom. God told Moses to take a serpent like the one that was biting them, make a bronze replica of it, put it on a pole, lift it up, and it'll be whoever looks in faith upon that will be healed from the venom. That's very important, because right after that, in John 3.15, you've got John 3.16, which everyone knows. And it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says that part twice. So this other verse is just as important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So he, mixes, he mentions and mixes the lifting up of the serpent. That's a position of visibility. They looked, and then they lived. And so... By the way, what does that mean? Looking at a serpent on a pole, how in the world do we find, are we supposed to worship snakes? What does that mean? Let me give you a, a caveman theology on that. I lived in the mountains where we had a lot of snakes, and uh, I actually saw so many snakes, I had a full-time snake stick leaning against the wall in my cave. And we had rattlesnakes. Uh, we weren't worried about the, the king snakes and the garter snakes. They eat the rattlesnakes. That's fine. Um, so when I saw a snake, you don't want to just reach out when you've killed it. Sometimes I'd club it. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I, if I was out in the trail, if it wasn't where I normally go, I just ignored them because, you know, it's a waste of time. But if they were where, where I travel, I'd try to dispatch them. It's pretty spooky. I'd hike down the trail at night, and you know, the warm nights, you know, snakes don't come out when it's cold. People always say, oh, it's rattlesnake country. I say, it's too cold today. They're not coming out. But when it's the right temperature, they come out. And I'd be hiking down the trail in the desert, warm night, and you put your foot down, and you hear, <laughs> and boy, I tell you, you jump 12 feet in the air when that happens. So I would uh, kill them with a stick or a rock, but then I'd want them off the trail because even the skeleton of a rattlesnake, if you step on it and its fangs pierce you, you can still get hurt. And sometimes people club a snake and they think it's dead. They reach out to pick it up and they are so tenacious. They'll spin around. You think they're dead. They're not moving. They'll bite you. So I would pick them up with my snake stick and I had a little noose on the end of it and I'd slip it over the, the head and I'd cinch it down. I'd take it off somewhere, dig a hole and bury it. 
This was a kingdom of shepherds in the Bible. Snakes are bad for goats and sheep. A dog might survive a snake bite. Um, I have one dog got bit a couple times he lived. Another dog died two years ago from a snake bite. And um, a pig will live through a snake bite, but sheep and goats don't do so well. And so when they killed a snake, they would pick it up with their staff and they would carry it off and bury it. So for that nation, when it talked about a serpent on a pole, it meant a serpent has just been defeated. A snake has been killed. It is being taken off to burial. And so it's not saying that we are to worship snakes. Um, but that, when Christ was lifted up, through Jesus being lifted up, he defeated the serpent. Through the blood of Christ, it's the antidote for the venom of the serpent, is what it's telling us. And so um, they were to look, and it began with a look. And when we look to the cross, yeah, if you read the book Steps to Christ, it's at seeing the goodness of God on the cross. The greatest demonstration of the love of God is at the cross. It's at the cross you see Satan's love of power and God's power of love. Um, how many songs do you find in the Bible that focus on the cross? Um, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Uh, at the cross, at the cross, there I first saw the light. Um, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. It's just hundreds of them, because those hymn writers understood that the cross is the point where, have you read Pilgrim's Progress? Came to the foot of the cross, finally his burden rolled away. Uh, so it's through seeing what happened at the cross. So first step in salvation is we need to see the goodness of God is seen in the context of the cross. The badness of sin is seen in the context of the cross. We don't realize our need of a savior until we see how deadly sin is. Look what it did to Jesus. And not only do we see uh, the goodness of God and the badness of sin at the cross, um, it's in the year our king died. You notice the first words in uh, Isaiah chapter 6? In the year that King Isaiah died. Now, was King Isaiah a good king or bad king? Principally good. Uh, you read 90% of what it says. Uh, yeah, he did make a mistake with pride when he went to the temple, but we assume he repented at, at that point. I mean, David made mistakes too. Hezekiah made mistakes. So did Jehoshaphat. All the good kings, it reports some mistake, except King Josiah. Every other king, there was some kind of backsliding. But King, uh, king Isaiah reigned 52 years, and it says that he walked in all the commandments of the Lord, as did David his father. And it mentions his pride in going into the temple of the Lord. And he was cursed with leprosy, but we believe he repented and died saved before that. Um, so he's a good king. Reigned 52 years, longest reigning king next to Manasseh. Can you imagine the instability in the kingdom when you've had the same king and you've had relative peace during his whole reign? They had great peace. He strengthened the kingdom. He built machines of war. He built up the cities. And then he dies. There was a great deal of apprehension. What's going to happen to Israel? And God gave Isaiah this vision to show him, I'm still on the throne. Don't worry. You know? And so it was in the context of the king dying, he has this vision. And it's in the year that our king dies, we see the Lord high and lifted up. You see what I'm saying? Good King Jesus, in the year that he died, we see him lifted up. What else about how he saw him lifted up? What's he surrounded by? The Lord on his throne. 
seraphim. And what are they saying? Holy, they're the same as in Revelation, crying holy, holy, holy. It's the purity of God that helps us see our sin. So you know, step one is you see the goodness of God, and then by contrast, what happens after Isaiah sees the goodness of God? He says, whoa, whoa is me. By contrast, you ever heard a Jewish person, person say, uive? And it's actually, uive is mir. And this is exactly what Isaiah says. That means, uive is mir, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people. And first he confesses his own sin and the sin of his people. You know, when we see the goodness of God, then by contrast, we see our badness. All right, let me tell you a story real quick to help illustrate this. When I was uh, very young, my parents divorced at three. I bounced back and forth between my mother, my father, my grandparents. Sometimes summers, I'd, I'd live with dad, my brother, and I. And uh, my father in his house, he had a shoeshine machine. And uh, someone just gave me one a little while ago, one of our AFCO students, actually. And it's one of these machines, it's like a big chrome motor, and out of one side of the motor, it's got a red brush, and out of the other side, it's got a black brush. You've maybe seen them in hotels. You step on the top, button turns it on, and it spins around and buffs your shoes. It's an amazing thing to me that in uh, 59 years, they haven't changed the technology. They look the same. They're chrome machines with a red brush and a black brush. It hasn't changed. Well, my dad had one of those. And I was always fascinated with it because I'd, just, I'd sit there and I, it was on the floor in our hall upstairs and I'd turn it on and it'd go and it was so powerful when you're you know, four years old. And I'd put my hand against it until my hand got hot from just the friction. And I'd try to stop it and I couldn't stop it. And, uh, and I'd turn it off, I turned it on, it gave me a sense of power. I was too young to drive, so this is as close as I got. <laughs> and uh, I remember one morning I woke up before anyone else it's a Sunday morning. My dad was sleeping in, and my brothers were, I had a brother and a stepbrother. And, and I woke up, and everyone's asleep, and I was bored. So I went to the hall, and I played with the shine machine. I turned it on, I turned it off, turned it on, turned it off. Soon I got bored, and I thought, why don't I shine shoes? Well, I'll, go, I'll shine dad's shoes. So I tiptoed into his bedroom. He always kicked his shoes off by the bed. I grabbed his black shoes, and I brought them out in the hall. I shut his door. And I thought, I'm almost sure you're supposed to use shoe polish to do this. And I remember there was a bottle of black shoe polish underneath the kitchen sink, or the bathroom sink. And so I went in, and, and I didn't realize this was the liquid Griffin shoe polish you put on with a sponge applicator. I didn't know exactly how it worked, but I just figured black shoe polish went on the black brush. And so I somehow managed to get the lid off the thing, and I poured a generous amount of black shoe polish on this black brush, and I turned on the machine. <laughs> And first, it bounced a little bit, you know, because it was that light. It went bup, 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 because <laughs> all of it was settled like a pool on one side. And, and then it picked up speed, and it just all happened in a fraction of a second. It went, <laughs> and I was horrified. I saw this black rainbow suddenly went up the wall. It went across the ceiling, down the other side of the hall. And just, it's all happened in an instant. I, I saw this was bad, and I turned, I hit the button, I turned it off, and I stared at that for a minute. <laughs> And I thought, boy, this is the biggest mess I've ever made in my life. <laughs> but then it occurred to me, you know, you're young and you think things through very quickly. I thought, nobody saw. No one saw that I was here. No, everyone else is asleep. Nobody will know who did it. 
And so I went into the, my bedroom and I climbed back into bed. <laughs> and I laid there for what seemed like an eternity. Pretty soon I heard my dad getting up and you could hear him banging around the bathroom. And uh, then um, he opened the closet, uh, his bedroom door walked into the hall. And I heard his footsteps pause. Then I heard him make some guttural noises. <laughs> like, what, what, what? <laughs> And then immediately I saw the light come out of my room because he opened my bedroom door and I'm laying there. My brother's in the same room, you know, we're both, and I'm laying there, you know, like this. And he goes, Dougie, Dougie. I'm, I'm trying to act like I'm asleep. <laughs> he said, no, he'll never know. <laughs> Dougie, get in here. And uh, I got up and I knew he meant business. So I got up and I rubbed my eyes, act like I'm asleep, you know, and I walk in and he's, he points with his hands on his hip, he points, says, do you know anything about this? Yeah. I said, anything. I said, maybe a thief broke in and tried to shine your shoes. Who knows what happened? I said, could have been anything could have happened. Nobody saw me. So I'm going to ask you again. Do you know anything about this? And then once you start down the road of lying, you just feel like you need to keep going. And, and I said, no. So there was a bench conveniently right there in the hall, and he sat down on the bench, and he took me and he put me over his knee. He said, well, I'm going to spank you until you tell me the truth. And he starts to spank me. This is before it was illegal. And, and he, he starts to spank me. And, and I'm going, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. And eventually, you know, you break under torture. And I said, I did it, I did it. <laughs> So he sat me down, and I'm whimpering and crying and sobbing. And he said, I didn't spank you because you made a mistake. He said, I spanked you because you lied to me. He said, now get in the bathroom, wash your face. Oh. So I went into the bathroom, and I actually had to stand up on this little stool to look in the sink. And I, and I looked in the mirror, and I had black spots all over my face. And I said, Uy is they is Mira. I said, woe is me, I am undone. <laughs> because what happened is I thought, and nobody will know, but I saw myself through my father's eyes. And I thought, wow, what a mess. And you know, that's what we all need, is we need to see ourselves through our father's eyes and we'll realize that we've got a problem. So after he sees himself, he says, woe is me, I am undone. He confesses and he repents. And that's the next step. You know, you read in Job chapter 42, verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I arbor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What led Job to repentance? Now my eyes see you. And when he saw the holiness of God like Isaiah, he said, I repent in dust and ashes. This, of course, is the end of the book of Job when God reveals himself to Job. When we turn our eyes on Jesus, when we look at the Lord, we are transformed by beholding. But do not become discouraged if you feel badly when you look at the goodness of God. It is good for you to feel bad when you see his goodness. Uh, there's a quote in the book Steps to Christ that the closer we draw to the, the presence and the brilliance of God, the more painfully distinct will every spot of defilement in our character become. Now, that's a, that's a paraphrase, but uh, that's the gist of what uh, she wrote there. And so, you know, when someone comes in the room and you've been in the dark and they turn on the light, there may be a period of pain while you get adjusted. And as you turn your eyes on Jesus, it may be a painful thing. But don't ask to turn the light back off again so you can just stay in the dark. 
Another story. Um, when I lived in Palm Springs, after I came out of the cave, I had a meat business. And believe it or not, I sold meat, and I'm a vegetarian now. And uh, it was Doug Batchelor's Wholesale Prime Beef Steaks. And I used to take these steaks I would butcher. I'd buy sections of beef, I'd butcher them into different steaks, and I'd take them around Palm Springs, Desert Hot Springs, and I'd sell them. And um, it, it amazes me people bought them. Because, you know, I, just, I was a long-haired hippie back then. And uh, Anyway. But I, as I drove my little Volkswagen, I had a Volkswagen with, my, with an ice chest in the back. As I drove it around the desert, they have terrible sandstorms out there. And it kind of wore the, the paint off the edges. I don't know if any of you have seen what happens to a car that down in the desert regions there. But it, you'd get caught in a sandstorm, and it would pit your windshield over time so that it looked like a bathroom window. If the sun hit my window, I could not see out of it. And it would take the paint off the fenders, just blast it off the fenders. And this was my first car. And I grew up in New York City. I took taxi, bus, walked. I didn't know anything about cars. I remember when I got my first Volkswagen, I said, now where do I put the water in the radiator? And they said, it doesn't have a radiator. And I remember opening up the, the front looking for the engine. And it was, that's the storage was in the front. The engine's in the back. I mean, I knew nothing about cars. And someone said, now Doug, make sure to keep the oil full. Now I heard the word full. And I thought them that you poured oil in there until it ran out. They didn't explain a dipstick to me. And so I just kept pouring oil in the engine until it's running out of the spout. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, and I did that, and then it got so warm it blew the seals out and the thing and started leaking oil. And, and uh, so after a while, I thought, you know, I probably ought to sell this car. Uh, and... I went to Kmart and I got some paint that was almost the same color and I painted the fenders and I got some armor all, I cleaned up the tires, I put some STP in the engine, anyone knows what, what that is? Yeah. It kind of cuts down your oil leaks and uh, it builds the compression up and, and I did everything I could to make the car look good and then I noticed that when the sun went behind Mount San Jacinto, a tall mountain, Palm Springs was in the shade for a couple hours before sundown. The car looked really good in the shade. You couldn't see that the windshield, when the sun wasn't hitting it, you couldn't really tell that it was pitted pretty bad. And so when I ran an ad in the paper, I said, uh, yeah, 1971 Volkswagen three-speed automatic, you know, $500 will show after five o'clock. I really did that. Uh, I, I was not a member of the church yet <laughs> back then. Because it looked good in the shade. You know, we all kind of look good in the shade. We compare ourselves among ourselves and by ourselves, but if you step into the light of God, when you're exposed to the glory of God, then you'll say, woe is me, and you repent. Now, repentance is a sorrow for sin and a willingness to turn away from sin. Repentance is not just you say three Hail Marys, cross yourself, and go out and do the same thing. That's not repentance. Repentance is uh, Peter went out and wept bitterly, and he was transformed. David, when he repented, he laid on his face for seven days. Uh, a lot of people talk about the sin of David, and they want to sin like David, but they don't want to repent like David. You don't see too many people really sorry uh, about their sin. Not just sorry they were caught, but sorry about what they've done to God. Judas was sorry about what was going to happen to him, and he hung himself. Pharaoh was sorry about the consequences 
Whereas Peter was sorry he had hurt Jesus. And that's what real repentance here is. Romans says in chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Uh, you read in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter also says in his Pentecost sermon, it is God who gives repentance to Israel. It's, repentance is a gift. It's a gift of the Spirit. One of the things Jesus said the Holy Spirit will do is he'll lead us to conviction. And so Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw himself. He then repents. And repentance is being sorry enough to stop. Now, that doesn't mean you may not repeat the same mistake. But you ought to, when you really repent, you ought, there ought to be a transformation. How important is repentance in the Christian experience? What were the first words John the Baptist said when he began to preach? <laughs> repent. What were the first words Jesus said when he began to preach? He said, repent. How many sermons do you hear on repentance? Uh, you know, in order for a person to repent, they need to know what they're doing is a sin. The woman at the well could not know that Jesus was the Messiah until he put his finger on something specific in, his, in her life. He had a very loving conversation with her about water and about mountains and about worship, and then he said, go call your husband. And that's when she realized, woo, yeah, I've had a little problem with that. I've had a, a problem in my relationships. And he said, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. You don't hear too many sermons where people get specific about sin. It's not very popular. But uh, Jesus did. John the Baptist did. And they came to him and they said, what shall we do? He told the soldiers, do no violence to any man. Stop complaining about your wages. And uh, the different ones said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And they were asking for specifics. And he told them how to repent. And it usually meant bringing forth fruits of repentance, which is a change of behavior. A turtle was walking slowly through the woods one day, and he heard this froggy voice going, help, help. And eventually the turtle made his way over to the edge of this deep hole where he looked in the hole and there was a frog. And the turtle said, what's the trouble? The frog said, well, can't you see? I've hopped into this hole and I can't get out. It's too deep. The turtle said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, if you could go find a stick and drop it down in the hole, I could climb out. He said, give me a moment. Well, the turtles are small, they're kind of slow. So about 20 minutes later, the turtle comes back, and the frog is there sunbathing not far from the entrance of the hole. The turtle said, I went and got you this stick, and you are not in the hole anymore. What happened? The frog said, well, I couldn't get out, but a snake crawled in, and I had to get out. <laughs> It's amazing what you can do when you're motivated. <laughs> if we really understood the deadly nature of sin, but we presume on the mercy of God and we figure I'll just keep sinning and I'll ask him to forgive me, and then I'll sin I'll ask him to forgive me. My grandfather smoked Lucky Strike cigarettes for uh, 60 years. If any of you remember, those were like the unfiltered industrial strength, you know, you kill you in 10 minutes cigarettes. They're just really pretty strong. He tried to quit and he tried to quit and he tried to quit. And then one day he quit. I said, Grandpa, what happened? He smoked over 50 years. 
And he said, I was in the hospital for a digestional problem and some stomach problem. And, and he said, uh, I was sharing the room with a man who had throat cancer and his voice box was removed. And I said, I saw him smoking a cigarette through a hole in his throat. And he said, that's all it took. And uh, he said, I threw him away and I never smoked again. And by the way, he lived in 93. Wow. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm figuring since my dad smoked for 50 years and he lived to 83 and my grandfather smoked for 50 or 60 years and he lived in 93, since I don't smoke, I've got, if I take care of myself. <laughs> but um, you can do what you want to do when you want to. People say, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I just can't, I've got to have another cigarette. And if someone pulls out a gun and puts it in and says, you like that cigarette, I'm pulling the trigger, you probably think, I could probably go a little longer. <laughs> I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I can't stop, I've got to have another Twinkie. <laughs> you can, yes you can, you just got to want to bad enough. And whatever it happens to be, God can give you the victory. You ever heard my sermon? I think I preached it here, Cold Confession. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, boy, and I just I share that because it's an it's sort of an an autopsy of how you struggle with an addiction, and um, you can change. So you repent, and part of repentance is confession. Now, if you didn't know it, I probably should have told you this to start with. I'm giving you seven steps to salvation. These are the seven steps in the process. See God. I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll go back. You see God. You see yourself. You repent. You confess, you receive, you hear, you go. Yeah, I'll do it again. See God, step one. Step two, see yourself. Step three, you repent. Step four, you confess. Step five, you receive. Step six, you hear. Step seven, you go. All right. Now back, let's talk a little bit about confession. I think confession is sort of the sister to repentance. They often go together. When Zacchaeus sees Jesus, Jesus then shows his love. He says, I want to abide at your house. I love you. He comes down. He publicly repents. He says, if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I'll restore him fourfold. And half my goods I give to the poor. And it's pretty clear he'd been stealing from everybody. He says if, but he's a publican. It's not an if. He had been extorting money from people. That's how they made their money. And um, he publicly confesses it. And then after that happens, he's accepted by the Lord. Jesus declares him a son of Abraham. Thief on the cross, he says to his fellow thief, do you not fear God, seeing we are in the same condemnation? But this man has done nothing amiss. He publicly confesses. We are getting what we deserved. Right? But this man has done nothing amiss. And then the Lord tells him, verily you'll be with me. He says, Lord, remember me, he confesses. You will be with me in paradise. Look at how beautiful that is, how quick that all happens. So the steps to salvation aren't long. How long does this vision take, this experience in Isaiah 6? It's a matter of moments. After he confesses uh, his sin, let me say one more thing about confession. I'm trying to hurry so I can give you some question time. I've met people who have been in the church for years and they've never really confessed their sins to God. Now, if you confess, if you, if you sinned against somebody, go to them and apologize. 
um, and reconcile. Uh, Spirit of Prophecy says a lot about that. You know, how can Jesus, there's only one commentary Christ makes on the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Father in heaven will forgive you, but if you do not forgive them, he will not forgive you. It cannot be misunderstood. It's also in the parable in Matthew 18. So my heavenly Father will do also to you, unless each of you forgive every man his brother his trespasses. From his heart, he adds, from his heart. So there needs to be reconciliation, confession to others, if it's a local horizontal sin, but most confession is to God. That should be done privately. You don't need to go to a priest. And people often come to me and they tell me things. I say, look, I don't want to know the details of that. Stop it. <laughs> people tell me things. I, I put pictures in my mind I don't want. I said, you need to tell that to God. And uh, he'll forgive you. But, um, and when you do that, God promises that he'll help you get a new beginning. I, I sometimes think that if you get by yourself, if you've never done this before, if you want to feel a new birth, Kneel down, get a piece of that old office ledger paper, make a list, and just start with the Ten Commandments, because no one here can remember all their sins. But if you've been a liar, if you've been unmerciful, if you've been um, coveting others' things, or taking God's name in name, adultery, whatever it is, make a list, say, Lord, I'm guilty of these things, write it down. Pray for a moment, that prayer, search me, Lord, try me, is there any wicked way, lead me in the way everlasting. And God will bring things to your mind. I know someone that was praying like that, and they said, I forgot that I'd stolen $20 from my sister 20 years ago. And they said, the Holy Spirit brought that back to me that I'd never confessed, never paid her back or whatever. You might say, Lord, how do I reconcile this? I used to steal from my employer. I'm going to get thrown in jail. What do I do? <laughs> you know, people come to me with some difficult challenges. Whatever it is. You repent of it, anything you can do to restore, don't kneel down and say, Lord, I'm sorry I borrowed my, my neighbor's leaf blower and I've not given it back. Please forgive me. And God will say, take it back and then I'll forgive you. You know, I mean, so there's some things you need to do right. Um, and then God promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've gone to people that are dying on a hospital bed. They can't make a list and they can't reconcile. Will God still forgive them? Did he forgive the thief on the cross? But if we have time and if we have means, as far as possible, right any wrongs you can. If there's people you need to apologize to, do that. I have a friend, he got, uh, he got a cancer note from the doctor. He thought it was liver cancer. It turned out to be something that was treatable, and he thought he was dying. Well, by the way, we all are dying, if you didn't know that. Um, and he said he was just convicted by the Holy Spirit, all these people, including his kids, that he just needed to apologize to. He, he just wanted to be right with God. And he was, he was talking to everybody, and he said, you know, I, I did this, or I charged you too much for that, and he went to his kids and said, I was a bad example. And, and, he just hit, and he said, you know, in doing that, he said, then he got the report, you're not dying right away. <laughs> they, he treated his cancer, he's okay now. And he said, but you know, I've got a relationship with God like I have never had before because I realized that my days were numbered and I needed to make things right. So that's a very healthy thing to do. And then after you confess, tear up the list. Don't let anyone find it, right? <laughs> now, after Isaiah confessed and after he repented, the Bible says, then the angel took a coal from the altar 
and he brought it and put it on his lips. Now he had confessed, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So God puts the coal where the problem is. And uh, he, he received the cleansing of the Lord. That coal from the altar touched his lips, and he, God's declared, your sin is forgiven, your sin is purged. So as soon as he asked and confessed and repented, God sent cleansing. He needed to stay and receive that cleansing. Receive the promise of God that your sins are forgiven. And then, uh, Karen and I were two days ago, we were at Niagara Falls. We you know, went to Pennsylvania. It did not make sense for the ministry to fly us back home and then fly us back to Michigan. It was a lot, more, a lot cheaper for us to take our rental car and just drive here. And so I said, well, look, we got a couple days, a road trip. We haven't done this alone without the kids for years. So we, let's go to Niagara Falls. So we went to Niagara Falls. And they, they showed us uh, a, a video of the history of Niagara Falls while we were there about this guy called the Great Blondin. He was the first one to stretch, not a cable, a rope of all things, across the chasm of the falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's just, it's monstrous, you know, the power of it all. And this is before they checked, took some of the water away for, power, for hydroelectric. It was in its full fury back then. And uh, this guy walked across the falls, I forget, you know, 15 times or something on different occasions. And um, at one point, he said, how many of you believe that I can make it across Niagara Falls? And they all believed. He said, will anyone let me push you across the falls in a wheelbarrow? And nobody wanted to do that. He did actually carry his manager across the falls on his back. Now that takes faith on the manager's part. So the Lord says, I can save you. Do you believe it? And then, then he says, climb in the wheelbarrow if you believe it. You need to receive it by stepping out in faith and saying, I believe it. This is righteousness by faith. God has made a promise. He declares you'll be righteous if you believe. Isn't that right? Aren't we saved by faith in his sacrifice? He, he declared to Abraham, this now is a son. He declared, sorry, to Zacchaeus. Uh, the crowd was murmuring, he's going to be the guest of a publican. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house inasmuch as he is a son of Abraham. He was declared righteous because Abraham, because uh, Zacchaeus had faith. The thief on the cross through looking to Jesus and calling him Lord and King, even though he did not look like a Lord and King, Jesus said, you are going to be in paradise. And it's something that must be received. So by faith, we receive that. And that means when you do that, you have eternal life. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Then next step six is you hear God. After Jesus came out of the water at his baptism, the heavens were open and there was a voice. It says, you will hear a voice. God begins to guide you in a new way. You will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. And when Christ came out of the water, the heavens were opened. His voice said, this is my beloved son. Jesus said, he that has ears, let him hear. Now, how do we hear God's voice? Through his word. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And they follow me. How do they hear his voice? He speaks to us through his word. It might be through a pastor teaching preaching. It might be through opening up the Bible. But then God guides us in a new way. I remember hearing a sermon about George Whitfield, <clears throat> great preacher. He was called the trumpet of the Lord. Before he was a, went into preaching, he was an actor. 
because he had such a booming voice. He had no PA back then. He could talk. Benjamin Franklin talks in his autobiography about listening to Whitfield preach, and he said that uh, he did an experiment. You know, Franklin was always doing scientific experiments. Things were, he was very curious. He heard Whitfield's voice. He said, wow, I have never heard of pipes like that in a human being before. And while Whitfield was preaching outdoors, Franklin paced off how far he could go before he couldn't distinctly hear him. And he went a mile away, and he was still hearing him. Over water, the human voice can be heard up to 10 miles. Certain people, not everybody. But Whitfield had an incredible voice. Ellen White would talk sometimes to thousands of people with her voice. She talks about the ability to be able to teach and preach publicly. So um, this one man, Whitfield, would go through towns and all the saloons would close and there were great revivals. This man was very curious to hear him, but he didn't want to be a Christian. And someone said, well, if you hear him, you'll be a Christian. He said, well, I'll just plug my ears. But I'd like to see the guy. So he went to where he was preaching, but it was too many people. And like Zacchaeus, he found a tree. He climbed up in the tree and he wrapped his legs around a branch and leaned against the trunk and he put his fingers in his ears. Whitfield came out to the platform he began to preach. They made a primitive platform for him. And uh, he looked at him and a horsefly started buzzing around this guy's face <laughs> and landed in a horsefly's bite and landed on his nose. And the man took his hands out of his ears to swat at the fly just in time to hear Whitfield say, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. <laughs> and the man was so stunned that that very moment that he swatted at the fly, he missed, he fell out of the tree, <laughs> and he said that he was converted somewhere between the branch and the ground. <laughs> <laughs> he that has ears, let him hear. Now then after God said, it says, then I heard, notice what happens with Isaiah, I'm almost done. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord. Then we hear. Once you surrender to the Lord, you will understand his word in a new way. Why? Because God does not want you responsible for obeying if you have not yet surrendered because you'll be accountable for what you know. Once you surrender, you hear in a new way. Doesn't Jesus say to the disciples, why do you speak in parables? So hearing they might hear and not understand and seeing they might see and not know. He said, but to you who have surrendered to me, you are going to see and you are going to understand and you are going to hear and be converted. And so once you surrendered, you'll hear in a new way. And the last thing is, after he heard the voice of the Lord, what did the voice say? God said, who will go for us? A lot of discussion about the Trinity today. It's so clear, New and Old Testament, that God is plural. He says, who will go for us? And uh, he says, here am I, send me. And he said, go tell this people. Salvation is composed of, it's a rhythm. It's love the Lord and love your neighbor. The two great utterances of Jesus, Matthew 11, come unto me, right? We come to the Lord in this vertical relationship. Then the Matthew 28, go and tell. We come to God, we go for God, right? You know the story of those lepers that... Uh, they find this great treasure, and everyone is starving. And they say, come now that we may go and tell the king's household. This is what salvation is all about. We come to the Lord that we may go for the Lord. And so here you see the whole story of salvation in the experience of Isaiah. And as I mentioned, it, it should be, and I think they still have them, 
All of this is in greater detail in the book Caveman Theology in, um, uh, I'm trusting they have them at the ABC. I've, okay, thank you very much. We've just got five minutes or so. If any of you had any short Bible questions that we could, I see a hand up here, say it quickly and I'll repeat it. The 2520, this is a kind of a, a, a divergent belief that um, they're picking the Lord's date that he's going to come. Is that part of it? They're setting dates and they're basing it on the seven-year prophecy in Daniel. And they're saying that you apply those dates, you make the day for the year prophecy. You know, I think Steve Wolberg actually wrote a, a, a book on that. Is that what it's called? Blind date. That's a clever title. And he goes into that in more detail. Uh, there's a few people getting mixed up on this. It's very sad. It's, and and they, they're taking statements where Ellen White says that William Miller was a prophet. And you're supposed to take everything that was in William Miller's chart. Obviously, he's not a prophet. He said the Lord was coming in um, 1844. You know, well, God used him. But, uh, so that, I think that that's not a lot of people. Some folks are getting mixed up on that. Uh, question here? All right, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, question about the nature of God's love. Let me go there real quick. Well, let's look here. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. I form light and I create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. God is not saying he's the author of evil. He's saying here that uh, when people reject him, isn't it true that God said, if uh, you turn away from me, I will allow famine to come. I will allow calamity to come. When the children of Israel rejected God, he withdrew his protection. The Babylonians came. The Egyptians came. So when you reject light, what automatically comes in? Only other alternative is darkness. And if we reject the love and the power of God, in that sense, things happen. And so, you know, the, the Jews often in the Old Testament, you'll notice that they saw God as sovereign. And so when anything happened, good or bad, they realized that, like the story of Job, didn't the Lord need to give Job a certain uh, length on his leash? I'm sorry, didn't the Lord need to give the devil a certain amount of permission? He lengthened his leash to, with certain limits to bother uh, and tempt Job. Hey, let me give some others a question here, uh, an opportunity, all right? Anyone else? Quick question? When the woman touched his garments? No, he wasn't, doesn't say Jesus was angry. He said, who touched me? It's he's asking a simple question. A matter of fact, the woman, fearing and trembling, came and knelt before him. And I think this is Mark 5. And he told her, go in peace. He wanted her to just bear witness to the miracle that had happened. That's why it's in the Bible. And the reason that story is so important is because the whole gospel kind of revolves in that story. You've got a woman who has a flow of blood for 12 years. She represents the Old Testament. She touches Jesus. She's healed. Jesus is on his way to resurrect a girl 12 years old. She's like the New Testament church. They both touched Jesus that day. And the whole Old Testament economy and the whole New Testament economy, Jesus is the starting and ending point of both. And the woman represents a church. So he wanted her to bear witness of what had happened. He didn't go, who touched me? Indignantly. No, he wasn't mad. And neither was he mad when he said to Mary, do not cling to me. Uh, I know in King James it says, do not touch me. Um, he don't, doesn't mean you're unholy, don't touch me. He's saying, do not detain me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go and tell my brethren I ascend to my God and your God. So he gives her the great commission. He says, don't hold me. He shows himself to Mary before he even ascends to heaven. So the others, and Jesus was not, he didn't lose his temper when he made the cord and he chased everybody out of the temple. 
Uh, all he needed to do was speak the words. Uh, but he was indignant, but Jesus never lost his temper. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Question here. If someone doesn't believe Paul's writings are inspired, they probably have a problem with about 50% of the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it, that, that'd be unfortunate. But let me give you, uh, if they believe Peter's writings are inspired, here's what Peter said. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter said, uh, as also our beloved brother Paul says in his letters, in, in which are some things that are hard to understand, in which those who are unstable rest, means tear, twist, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And so Paul, uh, Peter, is referring to Paul's writing as scripture. So they got to get rid of Peter, too. Let's have a closing prayer, okay? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the promise that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, by looking at him, we can experience that transformation. If we see Christ lifted up, I pray, Lord, that we'll realize that we not only want to see him that way, but we want to lift up Christ in our lives that you invite us to come to you and then go for you, to love you with all our hearts and to love our neighbors. Help us to live out uh, these dual principles in our life. I pray you continue to bless the camp meeting, pour out your spirit, that we might be drawn closer to you and be better witnesses for you. And be with each person, help them to know how to apply these things in their lives and to have that peace that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we do have a home in your kingdom because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.